I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is one of our architect profiles. We are going to dig deep into the work of Walter Travis. And to talk about Walter Travis, I have uh, Brian Schneider joining me. He's been a longtime lead associate at Renaissance Golf. He also does his own solo work. Uh, You We'll be probably seeing a lot more of Brian Schneider work in the years to come. Right now, he is uh, he's busy uh, building a 18-hole design with Blake Conant at Old Barnwell in Aiken, uh, Aiken, South Carolina. But in terms of uh, Walter Travis, he's done in uh, extensive restoration work at a few uh, of Walter Travis's golf courses, including Hollywood Golf Club in New Jersey. Uh, Garden City, which is a Devereaux Emmett and Walter Travis design. Uh, North Jersey, uh, which he is actually doing right now, a restoration of. And Round Hill. So he has uh, seen all but one of the Walter Travis courses that are left, according to him. And no better person to talk to about Walter Travis, um, you know, from a a also, you know, just building features, but the, you know, the architecture of that uh, made him unique. So uh, we talk about Walter Travis here and uh, it, it was a real fun conversation. So without further ado, here is Brian Schneider. All right, Brian. We're uh, we're here to talk about Walter Travis. Um, I think you know this is an architect that I got a little bit deeper into the weeds on this year. Saw a couple more of his courses. I've seen a handful, and uh, I know you uh, really respect the man, uh, respect his work, uh, and I think sometimes it, it even shows through in a little bit into your work. Uh, some some of the things you might see. From you, uh, you see in in Walter Travis's work. You know, my first question has to be: If Walter Travis was around today, do you think he'd go by Walter or Walt? <laughs> I think he was a Walter. I think he was a Walter. <laughs> it's a brilliant question, though. <laughs> it's, I I kind of think he'd be Walt. I think he'd go really? by Walt. You can't yeah. go wrong with either one, really. Yeah, um, it's a good it's a good day. Yeah, that's win win. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about background. Obviously you consult at a number of, uh, Travis clubs and, uh, tell us a little bit about the guy and, uh, how he got into golf and, and what you know about his background. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a biographer, but you know, he was, he was born in Australia, 1862 or something like that. Um, moved to the States as a pretty young guy, um, in 1886 or so. Took up golf nine or ten years later when he was 34 years old. Um, I think he was a pretty athletic guy. But, yeah, took up golf begrudgingly, as I understand it, at age 34. And, you know, four years later, won the first of his three U.S. Amateur Championships. 1904 was the first 
non-Brit to win the British Amateur, uh, which didn't go over very well. He wanted sandwich in England. Um, the locals were none too happy about it. I forget the the exact details of kind of the, the trophy presentation or whatever the fact or whatever you know the, this, the uh, ceremony was after he won, but the fellow presenting his uh, trophy was none too kind to him in the in his little speech. Um, I don't think the locals treated him all that well, at least according to Travis. But in any case, yeah, he he was the first non-Brit to win that important title at the time. Uh, he won it using the Schenectady putter, which was a mallet putter, kind of center shafted. That was banned by the RNA not long after that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, they they banned the the center shafted putter. I, you know, it, you wouldn't say it was necessarily directly retaliation against his win, but but you wouldn't discount that neither. They've done some things to Bryson that might some might say were similar. You know, he starts doing one thing and then it's banned a couple of weeks later. Yeah, I guess it's uh, golf has a long history of such things. Maybe maybe Bryson will become uh, the next Walter Travis golf architecture too. Travis, you know, yeah, Travis was like DeChambeau in that way. I mean, he was always experimenting with different equipment, and you know, he was. It, I feel like he was one of the first guys to adopt the uh, Haskell ball for competition when other folks were very sternly against it. Um, you know, I think that those things, especially the the Schenectady, I think that led to his falling out with McDonald. Actually, you know, he was he was pretty tight with CB McDonald early on. He was very much involved in the planning and development of the National Golf Links. Is that how he started playing? Was because of CB McDonald, or you know? No, you know he worked when he moved to the states. He lived in New York City and just kind of ran in circles where people played golf as a as a social thing, and it was a business, you know, kind of an essential of business at the time. Uh, in the circles he ran in to play golf, so I think he took it up just because the the folks he knew and socialized with were golfers. I don't know where the connection to McDonald's started exactly. I mean, they were both, they both spent a lot of time at Garden City together, along with Emmett and a bunch of other folks. Um, so it might have been through Garden City that he got to know McDonald well. And, and McDonald obviously respected him as a golfer and invited him to participate in the national. Uh, but Travis was none too happy that, you know, McDonald was a pretty staunch traditionalist. And when it came to the rules of golf, he almost entirely deferred to the RNA completely. And, you know, when the RNA took away Travis's putter, Travis wasn't too happy that he didn't have McDonald's support. So the two had a falling out and, you know, to read McDonald's book now, when he talks about the national golf links, I don't think Travis gets a single mention. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, the impression is that he was essentially a co-designer. You know, he was very much involved there. And um, yeah, I don't know that, I don't know if he ever got back to getting along, uh, which happened with Emmett too. You know, he and he and Devereaux Emmett were were buddies for a long time, and you know Emmett had laid out Garden City. Travis made some changes to the golf course, and they had a falling out, perhaps over some of that work. Um, there's a beautiful letter at uh, on the wall at Garden City from Emmett to Travis. You know, in like 1921, I think, where Emmett said something along the lines of, "You know, dear Travis." You know, we were once very good friends, and I always regretted regretted our estrangement. Can we not be friends again? It's like this sweet, you know, heartfelt letter, and there's there's no knowing if Travis ever responded. But yeah, apparently, once Travis was crossed, he didn't didn't uh, let go of grudges 
easily. Him and McDonald uh, would be a pairing that was just bound for for an explosion. Probably. <laughs> yep. So I'd never really heard of Travis being a co-designer of National Golf Links. And, and is there something about the design to you? Like, is there a feature or a specific, you know, on a whole that really like stands out to you? Like, this reminds me of a Travis feature. Not really. I mean, Travis was known for his wild greens and clearly the national has some of those but but there aren't any greens at the national that i look at and say oh that was definitely travis you know mm-hmm. um yeah mike serba i don't know if you know mike or have heard of him yeah. but he wrote a really interesting long uh, article about that whole saga and how you know, travis was basically just written out of the history of the national by mcdonald um it's a pretty good read if you ever want to get into it further yeah, I will. Uh, I'll look into that now. It's uh, it's uh, McDonald. Uh, McDonald is a cantankerous fellow, and you know, you talk about the letter writing. I think I don't know if like club history is now like when you think about you. You go to a lot of these historic places, and they have in their library or their history room these letters that were written by architects back to clubs. Are those going to be like emails printed out in the future? <laughs> like what that's going to be? But it just makes me think like, are, is, uh, you know, Skokie or, or um, you know, uh, North Jersey going to have an email printed out from you to them um, about the about the changes that you're making at the course? That's what not. Yeah. Um, so if if I was somebody that never seen a Walter Travis design, how would you describe it? Oh, it's hard to do that with architects. Um, you know, it just he was a, a product of the time, so there wasn't, you know, there clearly wasn't much, much earth moving involved in in building his golf courses. But he clearly also did a lot of work around his green complexes. Um, you know, he packed a lot of contour and slope in typically small packages. You know, relative to to modern greens, especially. Um, you know, he wasn't afraid of blind shots, so a lot of his courses feature blind shots off the tee or even into greens, but it's hard, you know, it's just hard to, to stereotype any architect that way, but his, you know, his greens, definitely there are similarities from one course to the next, especially kind of in the, the heyday of his design career. Um, you can go from one course to the next and you, you can definitely recognize the similarities. And, and I suspect that was at least partly driven by the people that were building his golf courses for him, that, mm-hmm. you know, he did a lot of his work in the Northeast and I presume that, you know, you know he, he took shapers, builders from one project to the next, and that helped him build the greens that he built, for which he's known. With uh, with the greens, and, and I think you zeroed in on those, and I think like, if, uh, a conversation about Walter Travis probably, like, start, starts at the greens because, you know, they are some of the most unique greens that you'll, you'll encounter, and, uh, you know, I the thing one of the things that I was most struck by is like how well they hand, handle modern speeds. Um but uh can you explain, you know, like what it is that make Travis Greens unique? Yeah, I think you touched on that. I mean, the one of the things I love about them, I don't know that there's ever been an architect who's built more interesting greens. Um but they do continue. They're packed with contour, but they still work really well at today's green speeds, which is fascinating. I mean, there are there aren't many greens on his courses where it's just a steep 5% back to front, you know, where you're going to, you're going to putt off the green, or if you miss over here, you're just dead because you can't keep it on the green. Um, 
you know, a lot of his greens are kind of segmented and they contain little ridges and backstops and bowls and, you know, contour around the edges, mounting around the perimeters that kind of help you stay on the green, even if you're in the wrong section and you're going to have a hard time getting within six or eight feet with your first putt. At least you're not going to end up 30 yards down the approach in most cases. Again, it's hard to pigeonhole his greens to him, and there's a lot of variety, and that's one of the things that makes him really worth study. It's not the same thing over and over. Though um, he did have a few greens that you might even call templates that he did kind of take from course to course with him. But, um, but you know, they, a lot of them feature these broad swales across the greens, almost Beeritz-like or diagonal swales, uh, little pimply mounds around the edges. Um, there's just a lot going on, but it's fun to see. You know, it's fun to, to go from one course to the next. And there's always, you know, if it's a well-preserved Travis course, you know, you're going to find a bunch of really cool greens and you're going to see some stuff you've never seen before. Yeah, I think those ex like kind of those pimply, as you described them, pimply edges around the exteriors of the greens are are so compelling because of, you know, when you get the pins over into the edges, right? They play such an interesting role. If you're coming from the right place, they're they're almost like helping contours. And then when you miss, like in a spot, say say it's a, you miss it just short right of a front right pin you get these really awkward little pitches over and and they're almost like Maxwell rolls but bigger right would you is that how you describe them yeah they're definitely abrupt you know they can be very pointy and pimply um but you're right i mean you you don't want to short side yourself on a lot of his greens because you're often going up and over something and trying to stop it in a relatively small section of the green before it tumbles down to the next one Whereas if you miss on the other side, you've often got a backstop, which makes that that recovery shot a lot easier. So, yeah, sorting out where to miss around his greens is an important part of playing well on his golf courses. This that era of design to me is so good because of the the lack of ability to move so much dirt, right? But he was by no means like a minimalist. You look at like what he did around greens, and there. He did significant earth moving around greens in some cases, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's not on the same scale as Langford and Moreau or Rainer necessarily. You're not not creating these massive pads. Um, but there, you know, the, the contouring does extend out into the approaches and the surrounds, and he was kind of pinching up material to to create some of that mounting around the edges and to give the greens a little bit of elevation. So yeah, there was, there was certainly some work that went into his greens. A lot of them aren't just laying on the ground like Garden City. A lot of the greens too. I, I bring up Garden City, but a lot of those greens aren't his, so I didn't mean to make that, that comparison necessarily. With him not building everything up, but you brought up Rainer and, and Langford Moreau, and um, you know Charles Banks would fall into this boat too, where they a lot of their work was greens were built up. What advantage of keeping things on the grade did that provide Travis at the green more often? Obviously he built some greens up, but like, you know, yeah, I, I love Langford and Moreau and I really like Rainer's work, but you know, I think one of the drawbacks of Langford's work is that it's not necessarily well suited to the ground game. You know, a lot of the approaches, there are some pretty abrupt rises into the green where you're just better off flying it out of the green. And Travis was not like that. I mean, to me, his greens are asking you to to land a ball short and run it on a lot of cases. 
Um, Tom Simpson was kind of the same way and, and Willie Park, um, you know, it's, there are similarities to the old course and then a lot of times there's, there's an abrupt, but very manageable contour at the front of the green, you know, a false front that's two feet high instead of on a Rainier Langford course where it's six or eight feet high. Um, just, you know, asking you to land it short and, you know, climb that little contour and then stop it on the backside. So I think it's very much geared towards running approaches and, and thinking about using the, the 10, 20, 30 yards short of the green to get your ball close, especially to front hole locations. Um, and that's what I love about it. You know, it's, he, he asked for different shots into his greens and a lot of architects do. Yeah. I, th- I feel like you can build a little bit more variety in too. Right. It, it, you know, like I, one of the things that is, I think a lot of his greens are, are kind of deceiving um, where they can kind of run away or you're putting uphill when you feel like you might be putting down like there. And I, and I think this might be, and like, I'm just, you know, kind of rummaging off the top of my head here, but those things he created on the exterior, the big slopes on the, the edges of the greens almost obscure the way you see the smaller stuff in the green. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I think they can make reading putts confusing. You know, it's it's almost like when you're building greens on hilly ground, the the stuff you're seeing in the background can throw off your impression of what the what your putt's going to do. Um, yeah, and he wasn't afraid to build greens that fall away or hole locations that are dead flat. And you know, I don't I don't necessarily know that routing was his strength, but he did have a penchant for routing a hole up and over a hill and then just benching the green on the backside, you know, lift up the, the back of the green six feet to hold it in, but everything's still falling away. And if you land on the green, you know, you're going to have a hard time stopping it. So a lot of times like the 10th the at Scranton's a great example. Um, yeah. You've got to be thinking about landing it well short of the green, just letting it trickle on and hope you don't fall off the back. That's pretty cool. You don't see that from a lot of architects and that's something he liked to do fairly often. That might be like an example. You you mentioned like there were there's some common green slash holes that you've seen across this body of work. Are there any are there what are some that that come to mind that have, you know, some shared similarities? I don't want to use the word template, but maybe some common hole designs and what those look like. Yeah, he he often did a riff on the the Biarritz, you know, a, a swale not usually as deep as what Rainer would have built, but, you know, just a soft swale running across the center of the green or, or oftentimes at a bit of a diagonal. That was something you see on almost all of his golf courses. And, you know, oftentimes it's arranged a little bit differently. Uh, and the, just the configuration of the rest of the green varies from course to course, but the, the kind of diagonal swale across his greens is something you see quite a bit. Be like uh, Country Club of Troy's 12th hole has, has something like yes. that. Yep. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh-huh. And he built, you know, kind of a maiden style green on a number of courses too. You know, Misquamacate. I don't know if you've been Misquamacate in, in Rhode Island. It's, you know, a bunch of guys work there, including Rainer and Ross. Um, and it, Travis, at some point, they invited Travis out to take a look around. And the fourth green there, I swear, you know, he and Ross were buddies. They worked together a bit at Pinehurst. Travis takes credit for Pinehurst number two in some article or letter. Um, so I don't know the extent to which that's true, but but he and Ross certainly knew each other well. Uh, but the fourth green in Miskwamakit, which theoretically is a Ross course, you know, is a 
very much a splitting image, spitting image of kind of a maiden style green he's built elsewhere where it's, you know, this kind of a high crown at the front, a swale running across the middle, and then two little pads in the back, you know, divided by a, a swale. That's a green I've seen more than once. I'm at, I'm at uh, North Jersey Country Club right now, and their 17th is a, is a dead ringer for the fourth in the Squamacid. That's uh that yeah I mean and and most probably would have you know I didn't know Travis worked there or even you know had been there and it's like you'd probably think that's a Rainer because Rainer built maiden yep. maiden greens right yeah but it's about half the size of what Rainer would build a lot packed into a little package the the seventeenth here in North Jersey is at the end of a reasonably short par five uh, but it's all the work you can do to to get up and down if you miss the green. I think that's the th- thing you hit on is the the size of these plateaus, right? And and people probably think of like a Rainer uh, green with plateaus. They're they're really big. I think the shocking thing about the Travis ones is is sometimes how small they are. And it's like, wow, you got to hit like, I mean, they're so abrupt coming up, and then there's just this little paddock of space, and it's totally achievable but it's extraordinarily difficult to do. And when you miss, it leads to a lot of really fun shots, whether you're putting up onto, you know, trying to get it up on there or you're chipping from around the green. It it opens up. I mean, do you land it kind of into the slope? Do you land it short of the slope? Let it run up. Do you try and hit it a a higher shot that lands up on the slope? It's really, I think, you know, when I, when, when we talk about how it has stood up the test of time, the thing with these greens is they have these these vicious slopes, these you know really abrupt slopes, but then there's such pockets of flat area, but they're small, you know, but they they still retain so many pin positions. Yeah, there's often a counter roll on the other side that helps keep you in, you know, and that's that's why they continue to work really well. They're they're almost little bowls that you know if you get in the right spot, it's going to help you. But finding that spot because they're pretty small can be a challenge. You know, it, it's not it's not lost on me too that there are a bunch of really great superintendents taking care of his golf courses now. So you know, there's a lot of short grass around his greens, and you've got a bunch of options. And you know, these guys are doing fantastic work taking care of his golf courses, and that makes them a lot of fun to play. You've done a lot of work, and and as you mentioned, you're at North Jersey right now, uh, a Travis that you're working on a restoration plan at. What is it like when you try and recreate his work? Is it is it a difficult style to recreate? Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the guy was the best builder of greens ever. And it's like, well, yeah, just build 11 greens just like Travis would have. It's like, yeah, if it was that easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. You know, one thing that's made it easier is digital mapping of greens. So we didn't do that last year, but this year at North Jersey, I'm building the greens at grade. And, you know, I just paint a line around the perimeter and say, this is where the green is. And our contractor will map that, core it out, put the, you know, we're building USGA greens. So they'll core it out. You know, they'll put the gravel in, they'll put the drainage in, they'll put the mix in. And I don't have to worry about getting screwed up. You know, it's like they've got this this digital map of it so that once all that work is done, they can put it back exactly as I left it. So you know, the hard thing about building a USGA green is often the little rolls at the edge, you know, getting the green over the top of these 
these pointy little knobs or these fall offs, the false fronts, that can be really hard to do well in a bulldozer. Uh, to the point where last year I was using an excavator on the edges to kind of touch some of that up. So it was a pretty involved process, but using the, the method we're using this year makes my life a lot easier. It's a little bit more work for the contractor, but, but it makes my life easier, which is more important to me. So I think we're getting really cool shapes, and, um, but it is hard. I mean, it, it is hard, and I've, I've spent a lot of time going back to Travis courses over the course of the past couple of years to really hone in on his greens and you know, take some measurements, check grades. Um, yeah, unfortunately, they've got a handful of original greens here still, and the other places I've worked, I've, I've taken a transit to a lot of their greens and really studied what makes them work. So, so I hope I'm doing a decent job, but it is a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. With all those travels, uh, what what are some of your favorite holes, Travis holes at at a few courses? Maybe just give us a, a, a couple. Yeah, you know, he built, you know, according to the Travis Society, he built 51 golf courses, I think is their number. And I've got another four or five where I've seen articles that mention that he might have been there. So, you know, basically he built or remodeled. 50, 50 some golf courses, um, probably a dozen of them either never got built or have been wiped out completely. You know, there's probably another 10 or 12 where there's still a golf course in the place he built it, but it's no longer anything like what he built. You know, I think there's only half a dozen that you would say are well-preserved that, that they're actually still pure Travis golf courses. And there's probably another eight or 10 that are, are awfully close. So it can be hard to find original, you know, great original holes by him, but there's a bunch of great holes. You know, the one that pops into my head is the seventh at Scranton. You've not been to Scranton yet. I haven't. It kills me. It kills me. I I was in Scranton um, for a friend's wedding years ago and I had my wife with me and it, it, it was my friend you know, she didn't know anybody. It's just like one of those times where you can't, you can't leave, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And it was like, I was like, I'm right here. When am I ever going to be back in Scranton I'm here? <laughs> I want to go see this place, but I can't. And, uh, you know, and then, it, and then it pissed rain on Sunday. It, it was like the one chance I was like kind of thinking, you know what? I'll sneak out. I'll walk out there. I'll walk in the morning, just, just jog around it, at least see it. And then it's like it was like an utter downpour, like a deluge, like you rain you wouldn't want to go out and do. It's still there. It's not going anywhere. I'm sure you'll be back in Scranton someday. Someday. <laughs> um, but there, there's seventh holes really cool. There's a bunch of great holes there. Um, is that that's a hillier site, right? It is. Yeah. The clubhouse sits on top of a big hill. And yeah, I mean, that that's the hilliest part. But the rest of the ground does have some movement to it. Um yeah, the 10th hole there, which I mentioned earlier, is just a really cool par four that's just racing down that hill. And the green is tacked onto the steep hill at the bottom. And, you know, he jacked up the back and there's a little stream behind the green. So if you go long, there's a 50-50 chance you're in the stream. That's a really cool hole. There's just a, you know, a, a spine that runs across the green from right to left about halfway back. And if the pin's behind that, you've got to go over, up and over this 18-inch spine and try and stop it on the backside. There's a great hole like that at uh, at Glen Lydon, this really cool little course up in uh, New Hampshire, little nine hole course that's got a, a really similar green. That's like a neighborhood course, right? It's a, I don't even know what to make of the place, really. I don't think they have 
a pro necessarily. I think it's just attached to this this funky, tiny little community. And they have access to the golf course. And I got in touch with somebody there. It's hard to it's hard to get somebody on the phone, but you know, I was up that way and then reached out just trying to find someone to talk to and you know, kind of explain, you know, what I do and who I am and you know, do you mind if I take a walk around your golf course while I'm passing through tomorrow? And the guy's kind of like, yeah, we, we don't really do that. <laughs> we, we don't really let people walk around the golf course. So I got up really early the next morning before I thought anybody would be there and, and took a quick walk around. I didn't see anyone, but yeah, it's a quirky little place and that's a really hilly spot, but there's some, some great greens and a couple of really cool holes out there. Somebody told me about the uh, that place at one of our events, and he was like, "You know, I don't even really know how how you play it, but you know, I think he I think he said me, my son and I we just like just jumped out there and played one day because nobody was out there, and and, and it's such a cool place. He was telling me how cool it was. I I like thought about trying to, you know, veer off course. I just didn't have enough time to veer off course to go up there and see it." Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. It's very, it's very hilly and and pretty quirky, but there's some cool greens. It's really neat holes. Yeah, I had seen, so I had seen Garden City, which obviously is, is, uh, you know, some Travis, uh, some Event, and, you know, that's a more subdued site. I saw, you know, Cape Arundel, it's a little bit more subdued site. And I thought, you know, then we went and saw a country called Troy, which is on a very severe site. And it was, it was interesting you know what you said about his uh he maybe not the greatest router you know i did feel like i was climbing hills all day long but i thought the greens you know i was curious if like the greens would be a more toned down on a more severe site like you see a lot of places and and definitely not it was you know they're still yeah. hat packed as much of a punch and, and you know you see a lot of like this game kind of of like where the ground with a lot of architects, where the ground is is wild, they might tone it down to the greens a little bit. But when, then when it's flat, it gets really funky at the greens. And with him, it, it seemed it had that same consistency at the green that you would see. It may be not quite as wild as a Cape Arundel, you know, from one through 18. You know, there's a couple more subdued greens at Troy, but like overall, it still had those like big highlight greens. Yeah, I don't think he knew how to to turn down the volume necessarily. Um, yeah, he just he went for it everywhere, and yeah, the greens at Troy are that's a wild set. Um, that place could be really, really cool. It is. Yeah, Garden City's different. You know, I really do think of that as an Emmett golf course at this point. You know, I've been fortunate to work there a long time, and and it, they've got two assistant superintendents there that are just you know, lunatics for finding everything they can about the golf course. So they've got this massive treasure trove of information, which is great. You know, Travis made a bunch of changes to the golf course over the years, especially before the 1913 amateur. But most of that were were bunkers. You know, he added a bunch of bunkers to the golf course. He took out a bunch of Emmett's cross bunkers or took out half of Emmett's cross bunkers and left the other half to give you a way around. And he'd redone four of the greens prior to that event. The twelfth being one of them, which is you know the crazy green at Garden City, but somebody came in and undid his work on the other three at some point. And I, I don't know if it was Emmett or somebody else, but a lot of his work to the greens didn't survive there. But a lot of his bunkers are still still intact. Yeah. But it's very much an Emmett routing, and 
most of the greens are still original Emmett. But yeah, that's a totally different place than than most of his work. Is the par three out uh, the back nine? Was it thirteen with the crazy that's twelve? Humps, humps, yeah, twelve. That's twelve. Is that is that a Travis Green or an Emmett Green? I'm pretty sure it was Travis. They talked about you know there's an article before the thirteen amateur that mentions I think dromedary humps was the term they used to describe what he did to those four greens. So yeah, twelve wasn't the only one. There were three other ones. I think it was two and two and nine, and I forget the fourth one. But yeah, no, that green's crazy. That green's crazy. That's a great way to uh, describe it. What is it? Dromedary? Dromedary mounds. Dromedary humps, I think, is what the the term was. That green is interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen, if you've been to Columbia Country Club near D.C. I've seen the photo, the old photos. Yeah, there's a there are a bunch of great old photos of their 16th hole, which is a par three over a little stream back in the day. Today, it looks like the 12th at Augusta, but um, maybe someday. H.H. Barker was the pro at Garden City when Travis was doing his work. And Barker was hired to redesign the golf course at Columbia and stole the idea for the, you know, of the 12th hole of Garden City and rebuilt that green almost exactly as the 16th at Columbia. And then before Columbia hosted the 1921 U.S. Open, they hired Travis to come in and tweak the golf course, and he blew that green up. <laughs> so Really? Yeah. And I think, you know, he and Barker were, were buddies, and I think they worked together on the, the renovation before the Open. But he changed that green completely. Basically, he just filled in all the space between the mounds and, yeah, undid it. So, yeah, Barker copied the idea, and Travis was the one to wipe it out, which is pretty interesting. I wish they put that back. I mean, that was a really cool feature, and that was a really cool golf course. The, the two of them built some really wild stuff there, and unfortunately, it's all gone at this point. But you know that if if there's one place that you could build some some bold and uh, you know different stuff that that would really stand out on the eastern east coast, it'd be in D.C. Yes, you know, they are. If you had a Walter Travis course. Yeah, D.C. screaming for screaming for a golf course with that sort of character. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by USGA memberships. We all know the USGA for things like championships, rules, and handicapping, but they are also the biggest investor in golf's future. They do this through programs that help courses manage fuel, water, and other resources, that expand junior golf, and that make sure all communities have access to golf and feel welcome to play. This is really important work, and none of it would be possible without the support of USGA members. When you join the USGA, you not only leave a positive impact on the game you love, but you also get great benefits. Benefits like a members-only hat, a copy of the Rules of Golf, and a subscription to the Golf Journal. To join, all you have to do is visit usga.org join. And since it's the holiday season, you should know that you can give a USGA membership as a gift. It's pretty simple. Just go to usga.org join and click the button that says gift. All right, back to the episode. Well, you know, with his body work, this is kind of an impossible question. Like, you know, given all the stuff he did in its heyday, like in its heyday, what course would you consider his masterpiece? At this point, probably Hollywood. And it's, it's a bit of an anomaly in his portfolio. I mean, the, the bunkering at Hollywood is what gets everyone's attention. And for good reason. When he built it, you know, he built like 260 bunkers. And we've been chipping away at restoring those. We did a big bunker project there nine years ago in 
2013. And at that point, there were like 170, and we've added a few more back, and I think we're up to 186 at this point. So it's still missing a bunch of bunkers. But but he didn't really do that anywhere else. And the, the style of bunkers are more flash sand, and it's definitely an anomaly. And it was he built that on the heels of his time working with Crump at Pine Valley. So it's hard to think he wasn't inspired by by what was going on over there. Crump actually kind of enlisted him to try and make Pine Valley reversible, which was wow. something Travis was into. You know, East Potomac Park, the Muni in DC was a reversible golf course. Hopefully we're going to get the chance to restore that in the next couple of years. The West Course of Westchester originally was reversible, which is hard to believe when you walk that piece of property. You look at playing some of those holes backwards. It's like, yeah, it's pretty easy to understand why they settled on this routing. But yeah, there are drawings of the holes at Pine Valley playing in the other direction. That was Travis's mission. And I don't think it was ever built to accommodate it, but that was something Crump had assigned him to do. I mean, reversibility, you always think of as like, you know, with the Westchester or the Pine Valley, right? You always think about a reversible course being a little bit more mellow on the ground. And I think like Tom talks about that with the loop when he saw the land, he was like, you know what? There's nothing like super crazy about this land. But and that would allow for a reversible golf course, yep. right? Yep. And you think about East Potomac. I mean, that's about as flat of a piece of property as you could find. Yep. And you know, the old course, which was obviously was reversible, um, that is a very you know very flat. That there's a ton of contour on it, but for the you know, it doesn't have huge topographical movement. The idea of building a reversible course in Westchester is is kind of crazy to think of. Yeah. And I think like Dan Hickson did re- a semi-reversible course and and that's on a more severe land at Sylvie's Ranch but there's also nine other greens. It's not like the way you would think about reversible. So there's greens to accommodate the gotcha. other route, you know. I I I think you know obviously flat land accommodates that. I w- I wonder if you could ever put back the reversible ability at Westchester. I'd love to try, you know, that'd be high on my list of places that should be restored and and not just for the reversible thing, but his bunkering scheme there was pretty wild. And he built a lot of little clusters of pot bunkers all over the place. And it was, it was a really cool golf course back in the day. And they've done a good job of preserving the greens generally, though it's been a few years since I've been there. I know they've been doing some work. I don't know if they've touched the greens necessarily, but, but they haven't really messed up the routing or the, the greens, thankfully. So that'd be a good one to put back together someday. We've talked about the abrupt nature of his greens and the slopes in his greens. I think like something else that we haven't really touched on that you've you've talked a little bit about is are his bunkers, but also his above ground features on the peripheries of fairways around greens. He was very big on building things up. It seems like rather than down. Mm-hmm. What is it? What do you like about those above ground features that he built? You know, I think he was just a very practical guy. And, you know, at a place like Hollywood, that's a sandy site. So he went a little wild with the bunkers there. But, you know, here at North Jersey and Round Hill, where I've worked, you know, there are rocky sites. And to try building bunkers here, A, is really hard. And B, generates a bunch of rock. If you can, if you can get in the ground, you're going to dig up a bunch of rock that has to go somewhere. So... 
you know, at North Jersey, I think when we're done with our work here, there's going to be 15 or 16 bunkers. But he built mounds all over the golf course, including in the fairways, between holes. You know, there were there was a bunch of rock and he had to do something with it. So instead of digging bunkers everywhere and fighting the rock, he just built mounds and all the spoils from the construction work. And for the first few years of its existence, the members were asked to carry a little pouch with them as they played golf and pick up stones in the fairways as they played. And, you know, Travis basically told him where to, to dump the stones. So there were piles of rocks all over the golf course for a few years. And eventually they either hauled some away or just grassed them over, you know, threw some soil on them and grassed them over. But that's how they dealt with the rock problem. Is it a different kind of drop zone? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a funny article that North Jersey had a club magazine for a few years, and that's where they talk about picking up the rocks. But they also blast the architect for what a horrible selection of the site. You know, they, they blame him for sticking him in a rocky, difficult piece of ground where they had to pick up rocks for three years. But, the, you know, we're putting some of that stuff back. And around Hill was the same way. They had a bunch of mounds in the fairways that in the 50s their superintendent took out. Um, but he used that as, as hazards instead of bunkers. You know, I'm sure he would have, would have placed bunkers in a lot of the same locations if it was easy to dig a hole. But instead, he just used the mounds. But they were very much in play. They were not just chocolate drops on the edges of holes. They were in the middles of fairways, and they got in your way. Seeing some of your work uh, at Lanark and and your early work at Old Barnwell, it, it, to me, seems like the above ground features the that Travis kind of built. You are you were incorporating somewhat into your work. What is it about the grassed mound that, that really appeals to you as an architectural feature? Honestly, I'm just kind of sick of bunkers. You know, the work at Lanark was, was kind of like the thing I was just talking about. I and mean, we, we ended up with a bunch of material. They didn't have a dump. We had to find a place to put it. So we just built features with it. Old Barnwell's not quite the same, but I do think they're cool hazards. I think it's just rather than building bunkers everywhere, you can have some bunkers, you can have some mounds, you can have some berms. You know, it, it's just another type of feature that adds to the overall complexity of the golf course. And and Tom's, you know, Tom Doak has alluded to it on our projects in Houston, where we worked with Brooks Kepka Memorial Park. Bunkers don't matter to good players, you know, especially greenside bunkers. Um, and fairway bunkers, generally, if you're a really good player and you hit it a long way, you're either you're, you're going to try to avoid a fairway bunker if it's in your way, whether you just swing harder or lay up. Very rarely do good players end up in fairway bunkers if they can avoid them. Um, so they're not really effective hazards for challenging the best players, but they beat up the average player. And contour and mounds are a little different than that. You know, if and Brooks made that point when we were working with him that, you know, if you've got an awkward lie in the rough, whether it's off the fairway or especially around the greens, those are the hardest shots for him. That's what makes that's what makes something challenging for him. Whereas that doesn't really make golf a lot harder for the average player. Certainly not as difficult as playing out of a fairway bunker or, or a bunker 40 yards short of a green. So I think it's a really effective way of testing the best players while letting other people find their ball and get around and you know, not have to rake bunkers as often. Uh, so I just think they're a, they're a great alternative to immediately opting for sand everywhere you want a hazard. With Travis, uh, I, I think one of the things that, like a lot of these great Golden Age architects, especially the ones that worked in the Northeast, not a lot of his golf is accessible. 
there is a course that I think is extraordinarily good in Maine, not too far from Boston that everybody can play. And we've, we've talked about it on our YouTube channel, uh, Caper Rundle. And I'd love, you know, to talk a little bit about that golf course and to, to you, what are the quintessential things that somebody could take away from that golf course that would help them understand Walter Travis? That's a fantastic place. I mean, it's, it's one of those places that feels like it hasn't changed in a hundred years in a really good way. Absolute must see golf course. Yeah. Like maybe the most underrated golf course, one of the most underrated golf courses in America. It, and it's just because it's 5,800 yards in my opinion. You know, it's like that place. If I played there every day, the rest of my life, I'd be like the happiest human being in the world. Yeah. George Bush. He loved the place. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, from the pro shop to the locker room to the to the pro, Ken has been there forever. Um, yeah, it's just a great place to hang out. And the golf is really fun. I mean, it's it's a tiny piece of land. I mean, there's a reason it's fifty eight hundred yards, and it's it's not wide anywhere. Yeah, especially on the front nine, it's it's a shooting gallery when it's busy. Well, I mean, you drive in, you drive your car is in <laughs> jeopardy when you drive in. You drive like right through the middle of the golf course. Yep. Yep, there's no wasted space. Uh, yeah, that that sends the message from the get go that you got to be on your toes. A lot of the land, especially on the front nine, is pretty flat. You know, there there aren't a bunch of features. There are some really great holes that kind of play across the waterways that run through the golf course. But a lot of the property is really flat. It's just a great example of you know there are a handful of holes that are reasonably short, not very wide, and dead straight. But they've got these brilliant greens that turn an otherwise dull hole into something really interesting. Um, so it just illustrates that you don't have to move heaven and earth to create interesting golf. Just build a cool green and you've got something worth playing. And that place is loaded with cool greens. Yeah, that, that's one of the wilder sets. You know, Bruce Hepner's worked there for years, my good friend, and he's done a great job with the club of preserving and restoring. And it's just, I think it's, it's maybe the most authentic Travis course in America. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's all about the greens. And I think that's Travis's architecture. You know, generally he didn't overdo the bunkering. He didn't overdo hazards. Wasn't really into dog legs all that much. You know, he built a lot of straight holes, um, but every one of his holes had a really cool green. And, and I think Caper Ronald's the perfect example of that. I mean, some of those holes, and it, I think one of the advantages I had, I played it in like a, 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 a hurricane was passing by. So it was like a 30 mile, 30 mile an hour wind. So like, you know, you have these 350 yard holes that I was hitting long irons into because like, Thanks. you know, you're playing under the wind. I mean, it made it, it, I think it enhanced the experience so much, but you go through that golf course and you think about the greens out there and it's like, you know, I, I mean, a perfect example, like the first hole is a great extraordinary green but in a way it's like one of the more dull greens on the entire golf course which is crazy when you play the first hole and you're like oh this is an unbelievable look at this green mm -hmm. and then you think through the round and you're like well half the green is pretty you know that right half of the green is pretty tame outside of that you know kind of front feature and that that's really you know you go through that golf course and it's like you know when you talk about greens that you'd want to have in your backyard there are like there are six to 10 examples of greens that you'd want to have in your backyard. And in, in some of them are even those, like, I think some of the cool ones out there are like the more subdued greens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's some wild stuff like seven, eight, 11. Those greens are bonkers. Um, 
but yeah, there's great variety. You know, there are some quieter, more subtle greens, but they're never flat and dull. You know, there's always a little something going on that makes a back right hole location totally different than a front left hole location. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful set. It's a beautiful set. I assume, you know, and it, it, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you'd say that Walter Travis was the greatest green builder ever. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I love his greens. And I've, I've got a penchant for greens that have a lot going on. I, I like wild greens. Um, but yeah, I think they're fascinating. I, I love going to one of his golf courses, especially when I hadn't seen a bunch of them. And it was, it was always really exciting to, to go see a new one and just, you know, boy, I can't wait to see what he came up with here. Uh, you know, so many of his places have wiped out a lot of his greens. There are a lot of his golf courses that only have three or four of them left, but they're, they stand out, you know, they're, they're worth the effort to go see it. Even if it's only a small handful of greens that are left. Who would you place like in the near class below him as, as an architect, just to give people, you know, that may have not have seen Travis course. Donald Ross. Yeah. Donald Ross comes to mind. I mean, his, his best work is exceptional. Uh, I think he built so many golf courses that, you know, it can be a crapshoot whether you're going to find something really cool or not. I mean, they're almost always well-routed and interesting, but they don't all have the same level of detail to the contouring that uh, that you might find at some of his best golf courses. But yeah, Ross's best work is is exceptional. And Tillinghast is the same, um, you know, a little uneven through his whole body of work, but his best courses, places like Wingfoot and, and Fenway, uh, yeah, the greens are terrific. Somerset. Yeah. Yeah, Harry Colt did some beautiful work. Thompson is another one. I mean, I can't believe that that the same guy. It, it maybe this is the credence to like Tilling Ass maybe didn't build Black, Beth Page Black, but I can't believe the same guy built the greens of Beth Page Black as the guy that built the greens of Fenway or Wingfoot or Somerset. Yeah, that it's just it can't you can't it's it's utter banana land how dull the greens are at Beth page in comparison to those. Yeah. I don't know the whole story behind that place, but you have to believe that something's happened there or, or they just never got built the way he intended. Cause yeah, they're, they're a far cry from those other places you mentioned. He was great. I mean, I think Tom Doak is really good at varying his style from golf, from course to course. And I think Tilling has did that better than any of those old guys. Yeah. The, the places you just mentioned, I mean, from Beth page to Wingfoot to, Somerset to San Francisco Golf Club. Yeah, it's hard to believe the same dude built all those places. Uh, that's one of the things I love about his work. But he built some cool rooms. That, that set at Fenway is really good. I know a lot of people probably won't see all three of these, but like you, the, I think one of the testaments to Tillinghast is just like if you go, if you see the two courses at Wingfoot, the course, uh, the course across the street at Quaker Ridge, and then the course about a mile away at Fenway. And these are four courses that, I, I mean, I don't know if there's ever been an architect that's built four courses closer together other than maybe like Donald Ross at Pinehurst. Mm -hmm. But like there's four courses right next to each other and they are like so drastically different from each other. Yeah, even the two at Wingfoot, like they're, yeah, they're very different golf courses. Both great. What, uh, what of Travis's work have you not seen yet that you have on your like wish list to see? There's one left. Um, it's in Canada. Between Quebec and Montreal, it's called Grand Mare Resort. Um, it's been tinkered with. You know, Charles Allison did some work there after Travis, 
but I think, as best I can tell, I think it's slightly neglected, but pretty well preserved. And I've seen some pictures of some pretty cool greens. So Quebec City is a place I've wanted to visit for a long time. So at some point, I'll find three or four days to head up to Montreal and, and hit Grand Mare and check out Quebec City. But that's that's the last one on the, the society's list that, that I need to see. Uh, there are a few others that, that I mentioned earlier that have been mentioned in articles here or there where where he may have been associated that I want to check out, but, but I'm not sure what I'm going to find at those places. Did his, uh, his career working at, uh, was it the American golfer being, he, I mean, he wrote a ton. Like that's one of the things I think that's interesting about Travis is like, you know, he opined about golf and golf architecture a lot. And you can kind of like, you know, you always like the architects that you can read, you know, a lot of them wrote a ton. Some of them didn't write at all, but he wrote a lot. Is there anything that you did you find stuff in uh, articles that like give you a lens into his brain? Yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's great that you mentioned that because he was not just a golfer and he was not just an architect. I mean, he was, you know, he's on the short list of people you would say are, you know, maybe the most important figure in early American golf. I mean, he he was fascinated by the game once he took it up. It bit him pretty hard, and he, you know. He was into turf grass. He was into equipment and he wrote about all that stuff. And the American golfer was a really influential magazine and he wrote a lot for that magazine. So it, yeah, it's great to have somebody like that, that put their thoughts in words. You know, when you're working on Rainer courses, it's impossible to find anything he ever wrote. Um, maybe McDonald wouldn't let him, but uh, yeah, Travis loved to write, which, which is really helpful for, for trying to get inside his head. And he wrote really well, and he he didn't pull any punches when he wrote, which makes him interesting to read. If if you were creating a a Travis itinerary for people, you know what would be on like the let's just say the the short list, like the the five to five to eight courses that you you must see or try to go see. And obviously, you already mentioned Hollywood, and we talked about Cape Arundel, which I assume would be on there. Yeah, I think there are six that are really well preserved um those two hollywood cape arundel troy which you mentioned in albany um cool place it is a cool place yeah it's a very cool place kind of kind of like one of those clubs where it's like great that they never had money but also you're like if you just had a little bit of money yep (laughs) you know you could you could do some really cool stuff here but then you know the fact that they never had that much money is why it probably never got changed. And that's, you know, that's probably the case with a lot of his work. I mean, he didn't work in metropolitan areas all that often. He's kind of like Langford, like his stuff is scattered in little towns in the countryside, um, places that never had money to screw it up. So, yeah. So there's those three, you know, Cherry Hill club in Ontario, uh, just across the river from Buffalo is another one that's pretty well preserved. I wouldn't say it's one of his best courses necessarily. It's a pretty flat, quiet piece of land. There's a cool set of greens there. Um, and the other two are nine holers. Grand Leiden is, is well-preserved um, in New Hampshire. And the other one is, it's an 18-hole golf course, but he only did nine at Penn Hills in western Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. Um, the front nine is Travis. The back nine, he routed 18 holes, but Dick Wilson built the back nine years later. Um that had to be a big, big juxtaposition. Those two nines. It is. It is. They've been doing a little bit of work to try and make the back feel a bit more like the front, but they've got a ways to go. 
but that's a pretty neat place. They've got a beautiful little clubhouse. That's a cool place to visit. Those six places are all really far from one another. You know, he did a bunch of work in clusters. You know, New Jersey here has a handful of his courses. And there's one called Lakewood, not far from Hollywood, which is pretty well preserved, but neglected. Um, you know, there's a, there's a really cool trip. If you go from Albany to Buffalo, you can see six or seven of his courses that way. Yanandasis is a really neat golf course near, I think that's near Utica or Syracuse. They've got a very cool set of greens. A handful of holes have been changed there, but the stuff that remains is really neat. It's uh, it's like you know, much like uh, like Langford. There's only a few really great examples. More so with Travis than Langford, I feel like. But uh, yes, you know, we'll have to do this about Langford one of these days too. You know, it'll be uh, that's it. My my constant uh, campaign to restore Kankakee Elks is uh. You know, ongoing, even even while I moved out of the state. I hope it happens. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a cool place waiting for some love. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for uh, coming on and uh, sharing some wisdom on Travis. We're I'm I'm looking forward to seeing your work at North Jersey as well as uh, the new work that you are uh, you're building down in uh, in South Carolina, and uh, and excited to see you get more and more work. Appreciate that, Andy. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Big thanks to Matt Rusis. He is a new member of the Fried Egg. He edited and uh, produced this podcast. We'll be uh, he'll be doing a lot more, uh, a lot of video and audio stuff. So you will uh, you'll hear his name a bunch. And thanks, Matt, for uh, for putting this together. As a quick reminder, we're really excited. We we launched Club TFE. Uh, it will officially start kickoff January 2nd. Club TFE is a membership. It's for people that want more content from us. Uh, Nothing's changing for you, the podcast listener, newsletter reader. But if you are wanting more particular into golf architecture, we are going to be writing, talking, and doing more video content around golf architecture, as well as all other facets of the game. So it's, it's not just a golf architecture product. We'll have the, the Club TFE blog. Um, and if you're interested in learning more about this, uh, go to thefriedegg.com slash membership. It is $120 a year. Uh, so $10 a month that comes out to you. It's $120 a year. And we're going to deliver uh, loads of content. So we just put up on the blog a thing about how we're going to rate golf courses. And uh, we will be putting up a sample review and rating uh so everybody can kind of see what we're talking about with this but we're really excited about club tfe we're a couple weeks away from launch and um join in if you haven't and you want more from us so thanks to brian for uh coming on and talking to walter travis and i hope everybody has a great holidays (music) 